welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 55, recorded on January 15th, 2020. The Cloud Pod bug affects millions. Hey, good evening, Jonathan and Peter. Hey, Justin. Hello. Uh, how are your guys' weeks going? Slow. Eh, it, it's been a little slow and a little fast. I don't, it's, I don't know how it's both, but it's it's like Schrodinger's cat of a week. Oh, things are picking up for us. This week oh, has been good. crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of interesting news coming out this week, too, that I'm sure is uh, keeping your, you busy in the world sure. of managed services and DevOps. So, <laughs> uh, Well, let's, uh, let's jump into it because there's been some interesting stuff. Uh, so first of all, in general news, Amazon uh, Web Services is seeking a temporary block of the Pentagon's $10 billion Jedi contract. Uh, this will be a court order to halt the work temporarily. Uh, this came in light of a court filing released on Monday and the plans to file a request for temporary restraining order uh, on formally on January 24th. And the decision is expected to be on February 11th, of course. Uh, they have pointed out the numerous attacks of Jeff Bezos by Donald Trump and that the constant... Uh, you know, changes in the DOJ have resulted in this contract being awarded unfairly to Azure. Uh, the tax ADOS filing this week specifies that it will ask the court to prevent the issuance of substantive work orders under the contract. And the way these work orders end up being defined will likely be a key to shaping how far the order goes and limiting Microsoft. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that in the next few weeks. Yeah, the more I think about this, the more I think it's not going to be completely reversed. I'm sure some it's going to end up being more than a single vendor deal. I suspect that it doesn't get resolved until after the election. That's my, my take. Mm. Well, that's point. probably the goal, right? Just uh, hold it up until the election at least, because then there may be more well, I mean, support. depending on who wins the election, like Elizabeth exactly. Warren, I don't think it's going to be very uh, very nice to uh, AWS. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to win, because uh, I'm bad at politics. But uh, <laughs> you know, I'd be curious to see who, who wins and what their stance on Amazon is and antitrust in general, and that will definitely shape a lot of this relationship uh, in the future, I think. Yeah. Uh, so if you are running uh, Windows 10 on your enterprise desktops or you're running Windows 2016, uh, you should be patching. Because uh, yesterday, um, Patch Tuesday, Microsoft and the NSA announced that they have identified a new uh, dangerous vulnerability affecting hundreds of millions of computers and servers. Uh, the vulnerability was found in a decades-old Windows crypto component known as Crypto API. Uh, the component has a range of functions, but the one that is uh, bad right now is the ability to allow a developer to digitally sign their software, proving the software is tamper-free. Uh, but this bug would allow attackers to spoof that legitimate software, potentially making it easier to run malicious software like ransomware on a vulnerable computer. Uh, NSA confirmed in the call reports that they had discovered the bug and turned it over to my details to Microsoft. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of this was that they mentioned that their process includes that when they identify a vulnerability like this, they triage it and basically go through a decision-making process used uh, to basically determine if they're going to retain the control of the flaw for offensive security ops or if it should be disclosed to the vendor. And this one apparently uh, either was not worthy of offensive security ops uh, or may have been used for several months before they returned it over to Microsoft. We have no idea and no way of knowing. Several months? Potentially, yes. Decades old component. Except it only affects Windows 10 and Windows 2016, which is why I was a little confused. Because you would think that if this crypto API has you know, been around for a very long time, you would think that it would be vulnerable in all versions of Windows. Uh, but in this case, they're saying it's just Windows 10 and Windows 2016. So I don't know if they made a change to the crypto API that introduced the bug or, or what. But it was a little that was a little weird to me too. It seemed like a disconnect. Yeah, I I, said, I, I reckon the um, 
the bug is so significant that the NSA couldn't afford to have a foreign nation also be able to exploit it, so they'd rather close it for everybody than risk anybody else uh, having, having access to it. If you can run any executable and have it basically val you know, ran as valid through this crypto API, it's a complete violation of all security pretenses of signing. And so if you can't sign legitimate software, that seems like a big problem. Yeah, how many people really, how many people really consumers actually check digital signatures and things? Well, no, no consumer does, but the operating system by its own nature does. Um, and so if it, if it thinks this is a bad piece of software because it's not been digitally signed or it's, it's trying to spoof something that is valid and the signatures don't match, it doesn't allow that to run. It's part of the Windows protection. And even the Mac OS protection allows, does that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess signed device drivers are probably a pretty significant target. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I can definitely see on hardware drivers where that may be concerning because you could potentially, you know, make a keyboard driver that basically captures every keystroke going into a computer or, you know, the microphone control. Uh, so there's lots of risks to this. So I, I assume the NSA was concerned about that as well, potentially, if they hadn't used it for very many months before this or yeah, years. Maybe they already installed all the spyware in everyone's computers before uh, <laughs> the bug was closed. <laughs> Secretly, all these ransomware attacks are really the NSA, you know, just helping their budget out. I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, have uh, feelers out and exploit these until they start, their feelers start finding out that somebody else has, uh, someone else has also discovered the bug. And that's when they turn it in. I assume they disclosed this to Microsoft a little while ago, and this has been, because you know, they released the patch and announced on the same day, which, so it's definitely not a zero day exploit. So I don't know how long Microsoft's known about it either. Mm as they've been going through uh, patching it before it gets a big, a big problem. But apparently, I, I saw this morning, actually, that um, there's already evidence of it being used in the wild. So it sounds like it's going to become a very hot topic uh, for people, because that, that bumps the severity up quite a bit if it's actually being used and exploited widely in the field. Amazon Elastic Beanstalk has launched the public roadmap. Uh, this is, of course, on GitHub. Uh, this is, allows you to see the issues, uh, or allows you to submit issues and vote on influence of development roadmap items for Beanstalk. Um, and there's been a couple interesting items that I saw on the roadmap when I was just glancing through it. Uh, a whole lot of language support uh, coming for Amazon Linux 2, things like Ruby and .NET Core, etc., all coming. Uh, so you can move off of Amazon Linux to Amazon Linux 2. Uh, major refresh of the Beanstalk console uh, in the con in the GUI. Support for Windows Server 2019 is coming, and of course the desire to release uh, the Amazon. Elastic Beanstalk CLI on GitHub to encourage external participation and faster development on the Elastic Beanstalk components. So that might be interesting as that gets announced as well sometime later in, the next, in this year if that was imminent in the uh, Kanban board they have. So if you uh, are a big user of Elastic Beanstalk uh, and you have some feature requests, you can go open up issues uh, on the on the GitHub board. Yeah. I'm excited to see their the, uh, researching ARM support for Elastic Beanstalk. I did see that, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I like it. Uh, so again, this is the uh, the fourth one of these. This uh, this joins uh, Container Services, which is uh, ECS, EKS, um, and Fargate, uh, App Mesh, and uh, CloudFormation. So if those are uh, services you're using, uh, you might have missed our previous announcements and are talking about that. But uh, they've been on the public roadmap now for about six to nine months, depending on the, one of those services we're talking about. Yeah, and if you want to know what the upcoming roadmaps are going to be, then check out the uh, the AWS roadmap roadmap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sadly, it doesn't exist, but we joke about it on Twitter. <laughs> well, and, and these are just the things that they are willing to publicly disclose that they're working on. They, they typically always seem to have uh, features that were not on the public roadmap. So don't, if there's something for Beanstalk you've been told in the past is coming, it might still be coming. It's just not something they're willing to talk about publicly yet. Such a uh, great way to communicate this uh, type of information, though. I love it. I wish more companies would adopt this. 
to hope it keeps seeing more and more um, AWS services adopt it. I think it's really great, uh, especially for some of these public CLIs and these development tools. It just makes sense that you'd want to make these more available uh, and more capable for teams to contribute. So the uh, UK Home Office uh, uh, has selected AWS for their 100 million pound public cloud services deal. This is an extension of a, their prior agreement uh, for additional four years. Uh, there's a quote here from uh, the department. The award of the public cloud hosting services contract to Amazon is a continuation of services already provided to the Home Office. The contract award provides significant savings for the department over a year-to-year year -year term. Uh, of course, there's no guarantee they will spend the full 100 million pounds, uh, but it can spend up to that amount. And uh, Amazon had to say that government departments using AWS are not only enjoying cost savings of up to 60%, but also support a vast ecosystem of smaller companies across the UK that offer products and services that complement and help customers take full advantage of AWS. Uh, so I guess this is a, a consolation prize for Jedi, um, although it is uh, you know basically you know a tenth of a percentage of the size of Jedi. Uh, it's still nice to see Amazon still winning some government business out there. I'm guessing that most people don't know what the Home Office does in the UK. Uh, I did not know this, and actually, I I had to go research it because I was like, "What is the UK Home Office? Right. Is that like is that like Office Depot?" <laughs> or <laughs> I didn't know what it was, so I had to go I had to go do that research. Um, and then I also assume that you would enlighten us. Indeed, I I, I suspect there's going to be a bunch of protests and um, all the same things we'll see in the UK as we've seen over over here in the US as far as criticism of uh, use of facial recognition and, and that kind of thing. But effectively, the Home Office is responsible for um, law and order in the country, the security of the nation, but not the military and um, immigration. So they, so effectively, it's kind of like the uh, Department of Homeland Security for the UK. I mean, they are a little distracted by a little something called Brexit right now, so maybe this will I don't think they're distracted. I think they've all got their heads in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. Wake me up when it's all done. I think I like uh, Department of Homeland Security more than I like Home Office. That's a little. That's a little so much more friendly, Sando. It's the Home Office. Yeah. Chaps. But it also, I, but, I mean, Department of Homeland Security, I, I kind of have an idea what you're doing. Mm. Uh, home Office, I'm feeling like you're, this is how the British government people work from home. Uh, <laughs> this is, they call it that because they don't want you to know what they're doing. Exactly. It's uh, security through obscurity. Yeah, and um, I, I would just remind all the listeners that the UK has the most number of uh, CCTV cameras of any uh, developed nation. Is that partially because of the like London uh, drive zone where they pay like they have a lot of cameras on those roads to track people coming into the city and stuff? I think it was mostly motivated by um, uh, there's a lot of terrorism attacks related to the Irish Republican Army oh, yeah. in the 80s, you know, 70s and 80s, and I think it's it's um, it was an extension of that. They they sort of covered a, pop, you know, big city centres with uh, with CCTV cameras, and it's just grown and grown from there. While you were talking, I, I just Googled UK Home Office protests. Apparently, there was a protest uh, sometime in July. But apparently, it did not stop them from renewing the contract. So, uh, Hey, so Peter, I have some questions for you. Ooh, yes. Uh, first of all, uh, do you use Amazon Web Services for business or personal use? I use it exclusively for business use. How many production workloads do you happen to use? Uh, are you just Greater experimenting? Greater than 10. Greater, yeah, than, are 10. You, greater than 10. Okay, good. <laughs> I filled out this form a thousand times. <laughs> Uh, and uh, do you think that Amazon might know where your home, your office is and what your phone number is by chance and email address? I do. I'm certain they have that information. Uh, you know, I, I believe that as well. And I, I do have to say that as a company that is so big on machine learning and data lakes and data analytics, the fact that they can't set a cookie 
uh, to remember those settings uh, has been a great bit of annoyance for me in the last, uh, at least, really I've been focusing on it for the last three or four weeks, but it's been an annoyance for my entire career in Amazon. And so this next announcement uh, may actually change that. Uh, Amazon Cloud CEO Andy Andy Jassy has announced that they are uh, shuffling around the marketing department as uh, the head of marketing, Ariel Kelman, is now joining Oracle. Uh, I look forward to telling Oracle that I have no production workloads on Oracle OCI. Um, <laughs> and so they're apparently promoting uh, Rachel Thornton, former head of Global Filed and partner marketing operations, to take over for Ariel, um, who is moving on to Oracle, uh, which is a pretty interesting move. Uh, but yeah, there's also a couple other executive changes here. Uh, Matt Garman, who's uh, one of the VPs of sales, is also taking on more of a chief operating officer-like role, uh, as well as joining the S team in December. And there are a couple other interesting changes if you're curious about the uh, org chart of Amazon, which we won't get into here because it's a little dull. But uh, there's an article here you can click on and check out. But the marketing side, I'm hoping to see improvements. It's just not one of those companies and services that you would expect to see a ton of advertising, at least. So it's interesting. They've become um, the replacement for Barracuda and all the airports, I've noticed. I see a lot of Amazon ads and airports about going to the Amazon cloud to accelerate your business and... You know, all those kind of things. Overall, marketing-wise, they have a pretty large YouTube presence of videos and interviews and Twitter. They have a pretty large Twitter uh, setup as well. But, yeah, they don't really do a lot of direct marketing, um, if you will, for AWS beyond uh, the promotions and the things like the map programs and those kinds of things, which are marketing programs technically, uh, but not necessarily marketing as we think of marketing. Right. I do, I do hope that they can maybe unify all those forms and uh, maybe also, you know, set on one one from Amazon address for marketing emails because I, I do really enjoy getting 190 some odd emails every time they decide to send out a marketing survey uh, or let me know that, you know, an RDS certificate is expiring. It's really appreciated. <laughs> yeah, that they, they, you know, one time it's Amazon marketing and then the next time it's, you know, Amazon, uh, you know, Europe sending me the email, and so now you know it misses my spam filter every time. <laughs> so, I'm pretty sure that's a deliberate choice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is, but it, it's an annoying choice, and so hopefully we see some changes there. Yeah. If only you had a podcast to listen to that could give you all the uh, important information instead of having to read it yourself. You already found it if you're listening to us now. So. <laughs> Maybe they will do a marketing roadmap for you, public roadmap. Ooh, a public roadmap for marketing. Yes, yeah, so and I can file all my issues about marketing yeah. on their GitHub board. And they'll close them as as designed. <laughs> Done. W- will not do. Will not address. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance. Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, Amazon has announced some new EFS features. Uh, these are the new IAM authorization and access point capability for EFS. Uh, you know, of course, when you build or migrate applications, uh, we often need to share data across multiple compute nodes, and so that's where Amazon built EFS, which gives you a fully managed NFS capability. Uh, but it wasn't always fully integrated into either IAM um, or into the POSIX user, user system. So this, uh, these two announcements actually fix both those problems. So the first one um, is integration with IAM. 
And so this allows you to basically define the permissions to the EFS mount uh, at the IM level, and then you can use a third, you know, basically a, a open source utility called EFS Utils uh, that allowed the connection to use IAM authorization in transit encryption, uh, and then it can either you know mount the EFS as a write uh, read only, read write, or a client root access uh, to make that really simple. And that's all tied directly into IAM, which is super nice. It's about time, really. NFS is typically secured with Kerberos or something like that, but they have had zero support for, for authentication. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad they've built something like this. Yeah, I'm glad to see it as well. And then the second part of this is the, um, the support for POSIX uh, user systems. Uh, this allows you to set up uh, users and groups uh, in Linux uh, and then allow that permission set to basically populate to the EFS access point. Uh, this can be used for things like container-based environments where devs build and deploy their own containers, data science applications that require read-only access to production data and sharing a specific directory in your, FS, uh, or your uh, EFS with additional AWS accounts. Yeah, that's really neat. In, in a way, it, it, it starts to look more, much more like um, uh, an NFS-connected S3 bucket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does sort of, sort of look like that. And the ability to share this across multiple Amazon accounts is really great. Um, you can definitely see some of the interesting things they're doing. Uh, around storage, which leads us into uh, an article I got linked to from uh, Twitter somewhere. Uh, apparently back in December, uh, TechTarget had an interview with Bill Voss, who's the Amazon VP of Technology over storage at AWS. And so they had asked me a few questions, and there's a couple interesting uh, bullet points that came out of the interview that I thought we should talk about here at the show. Um, the first one was that um, he basically said that they would like FSx to eventually support up to 35 different file systems. Uh, today, of course, they only support SIFs and Lustre. Uh, but they mentioned things like GPFS might be an option in the future, um, or maybe something like ZFS or, or XFS or any of the other millions of file systems that you might want uh, available to you. Um, he did also kind of highlight that their, their viewpoint is that FSX is a single-tenant file system, where EFS is their elastic uh, multi-tenant file system. And he talks about uh, the reason for that is getting that microsecond latency on FSX uh, to the CPU from the storage, which they feel is super important, which is what they built FSX for. Uh, and then, you know, from there, he also mentioned the article, you know, there's several more features coming for EFS and SF3 and uh, FSX. Uh, then, interestingly, he mentioned there will be a new centralized storage management system coming uh, sometime later this year that will allow you to have uh, basically a single console to allow you to see your S3, FSX, and EFS, and EBS volumes all in one place, uh, which would be pretty nice to kind of centralize that, similar with, you know, security and SRE tooling, as well as the AWS backups uh, feature. Uh, it's all dog new trick now, though. It's like, ah. Oh. Knew where to find everything, and now it's going to move on me. <laughs> I've noticed that they like to keep um, them in both places, <laughs> and not and you know the new features are on the new console, but the old features are on the old console, and they don't always cross. So actually, it becomes a bit of a different problem where you actually have it in both places, but they don't have the same feature set. Yeah. And I'm looking at you, Amazon Systems Simple Systems Manager, <laughs> with all of your consoles and different places and menus that all basically do the same thing, but differently. I really need to look into FSX a little bit more. I mean, I, I assume that all these file systems are going to be network-connected file systems because as soon as you connect it physically to a machine, you, you can't really manage that anymore because the machine has control, you know, can, can write to the, to the volumes directly. Are there really that many network-connected file systems? Well, so you also mentioned in the article, you know, that FSX could support NetApp ONTAP, for example. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be their ability to make partners be able to offer storage solutions through FSX. I don't know if it's going to be like GPFS and ZFS and XFS and all those. But, you know, it's really interesting what you potentially might be able to do. But I, I'm a little bit interested in the fact they call it a single tenant because like SIFs, I don't feel a single tenant. I read single tenant as as in, 
it's deployed for you in your account and you get to use it alone, whereas EFS is a managed service, which is a multi-tenant service on the Amazon side. Oh, I see what you're saying. That might make more sense. Uh, it isn't, it, you know, this interview, again, it's from Tech Target, and they didn't clarify that <laughs> in their interview questions. But yeah, that, uh, that definitely might be what they're, he's trying to imply there, because that would definitely make more sense to me. I much prefer the podcast interview style because whoever did the interview obviously spent 15, half, half an hour or something talking to the guy and there's like five quotes in the, whole, in the whole article, whereas on a podcast, at least you get to interact for a little bit longer and dig into some more details. And Yeah, uh, which that, that story leads nicely into our next story, uh, which is that Amazon Backup has gotten three new features. Uh, the first one being that you can now back up an entire EC2 instance versus specifying each of the EBS volumes uh, separately. Uh, you can now copy your backups to uh, other AWS regions, uh, either manually or automatically. Uh, and you can restore a single file from your EFS file system instead of the full file systems. Uh, so this is actually really nice. Uh, this is some of the limitations of some of the things we saw with backup when it was first announced over the summer, uh, was that you know it didn't really solve the multi-region needs. So I, I'm really glad to see that feature kind of come to fruition where I can now copy those backups uh, to other regions for DRBCP reasons. Yeah, I shall shed a tear for my backup tool that I built, what, two, two, <laughs> two or three years ago now? <laughs> yes, rest, rest in peace. We, we loved you so. Yeah. Uh, it's actually interesting, one of the things they do with the EC2 backup. So AWS backup will protect all the EBS volumes attached to the instance, uh, and it will then attach them to an AMI that stores all the parameters of the original EC2 instance, except for the if you're using Elastic Inference uh, Accelerators or user data scripts. So like if you have uh, certain drives in a certain configuration, you have certain ENI attachments, IP address assignments, public, private, all that gets kind of stored into the AMI that they create. And then when you go to restore the backup, um, you actually get all those metadata items and you can actually either just accept them as is or you can change them. That's um, great. That's great for, for a, a DR solution. Yeah, it's super, super nice. That's not just, that's not just backup. That's, that's really, uh, really pretty useful. Um, all of these backup capabilities are available to you in the console API and CLI. Um, they do mention that if you are using RAID, uh, software RAID on your operating system, you still need to flush your file system to disk uh, before taking those backups. So if you're still doing that terrible practice on AWS, uh, <laughs> you know, that's something you'll need to keep in mind. But if you're not, uh, this is a really great solution. No mention of KMS in that in that article, though. So I'm kind of hoping it supports um, decrypting and re-encrypting um, volumes in other regions. Well, you, you can... Um, you know, copy keys between regions now. So I, I suspect that it may not be in this announcement, but it might be coming very soon. Uh, on the on the EFS uh, item, the uh, single file backup was actually really nice too because it actually solves a pretty big DRBCP scenario where uh, if you needed to recover an EFS volume or file an EFS volume for a DRBCP practice and that EFS was very large, um, that restoration could take quite a while where restoring a single file could take maybe a few minutes. Um, which really help out in an RTO RPO scenario that's very short. Yeah, or even just in your, you just think about like your standard um, uh, enterprise file system where you have you know tons of users all the time accidentally deleting files, calling the help desk, asking if they can get a file restored. It's like, oh, we could, but first we have to restore a couple hundred gig or terabytes worth of data to get your one file out. Which is a really unfortunate scenario. <laughs> yeah. All these are available to you for free, beyond, uh, well, not free, but uh, basically the app, AWS backup capability is available to you for no charge. Uh, but the, of course, the EBS uh, storage fees continue to apply. Um, EFS uh, fees for the restored data will continue to be a, a portion of the cross region backups. You will still pay for your cross region data transfer bandwidth and new uh, warm storage space. Uh, but those are just normal charges. There's nothing special for the Amazon backup. So if you're paying someone, a third party vendor, 
uh, for the same capability, you can definitely save quite a bit of money because you can get rid of that tool. And our final Amazon story, AWS is now offering you the NVIDIA Quadro virtual workstations in the EC2 G4 instances at no additional cost uh, in workspaces. Uh, so customers who need the most powerful professional graphics now use EC2 G4 instances to set up NVIDIA Quadro workstations. Uh, the G4 instances provide the latest generation T4 Tensor Core GPUs. Uh, AWS's custom second-gen Xeon scalable architecture, uh, the Cascade Lake processors, up to 50 gigabits per second of networking and 900 gigabits of local NVMe storage. And the use cases they highlighted for this are image like local image classification, object detection, recommendation engines, and automated speech recognition and language translation. Uh, and there's a quote here from Bob Pett, Senior Vice President of Professional Virtualization at NVIDIA. The new Quadro virtual workstation offering with Amazon EC2 G4 streamlines access and affordability for our customers who require the agility of professional graphics workstations in the cloud. In the digital economy of work anywhere, anytime, cloud access to Quadro on any device opens up new possibilities for designers, artists, and engineers working in industries like media and entertainment, manufacturing, AEC, and others. Hmm. I, I would think that uh, it's pretty useful for people working in uh, machine learning as well. Yeah, that, I mean, I think it, I maybe I didn't mention machine learning specifically. I, I broke it down, but yes, definitely machine learning use cases. I'm surprised it didn't they, they didn't lead with machine learning. I don't know many artists who are uh, who are going to afford to have a, a Amazon virtual workstation. I think that if you look at like uh, making movies, mm -hmm. you know, pulling yeah, like and Pix pushing like those Pixar huge kind of thing, 3D yeah. animation that 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 type of workstations needed for those people. Oh, uh, well, didn't Azure uh, did didn't Azure do the same thing? Didn't they do a deal with somebody a few months ago and we talked about, was it Disney or? Uh, yes, uh, Disney uh, Movie Studio, or was it Disney Movies or something like that was doing a relationship with Asia as well. Uh, so it's yes. feature parity. Potentially, yes. Okay. No additional cost though. That's neat. Yeah. So I mean, if you're already using the G4 TensorFlow-based uh, boxes, there's no additional cost for this capability, which is great. Uh, Azure has a uh, new certification, and they're the first to get it. The new ISO or IEC 27701 privacy standard. Uh, Azure is the first major U.S. cloud provider to achieve certification as a data processor for the new international standard, uh, ISO 27701, which is Privacy Information Management System, or PIMS for short. The PIMS cert demonstrates that Azure provides a comprehensive set of management and operational controls that can help your organization demonstrate compliance with privacy laws and regulations. Uh, being the first in the U.S. is a series of privacy firsts for Azure, including being the first to achieve compliance with EU modal clauses. Uh, Microsoft is also the first major cloud provider to voluntarily extend the core data privacy rights, including the GDPR, to customers around the world. PIMS, of course, is, a, is also an extension of the widely used ISO 27001 standard for information security management, making the implementation of PIMS privacy information management a helpful compliance extension for many organizations that rely on ISO uh, 27001 today. So this is a, a new addition to 27001, and uh, Azure is the first. Not me, too. Mm. Yeah, not me too. Pretty cool. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, in this world now where GDPR and now CCPA, which is California, I just saw an article that Washington State is going to pass similar legislation as well. Uh, this is going to be a big deal for a lot of companies uh, very quickly to be privacy compliant. Uh, and so seeing it extended to 27,001, I think, is a great first step. Um, there are still some complications around things like GLBA, which is the Graham Leach Beach uh, Beely Act for mortgage. And financial records that kind of override some of this stuff that still has to be kind of worked out. Uh, but you know, definitely there's a lot of changes uh, coming to the world of privacy. Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities, or custom integrations. 
and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Bloomadora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic or Azure Monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting bloomadora.com cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Bloomadora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. Buy and plain. Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data. Moving on to Google. Uh, so Jonathan, uh, we have to ask, who tipped you off from Google that risk chips were going to yeah. be? Yeah, <laughs> cheater. I will lead with saying I did say risk five. Uh, uh, did you technically say risk five? I, I think I'm not sure I, you specified I think that. I, I think I, well, I, I highlighted risk five as a partner that Google had been working with. So I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll happily take the point because I'm super happy to see the see uh, risk chips on Google Cloud. Um, those uh, IBM Power CPUs are pretty awesome. Yeah, IBM Power Systems are now available to you on the Google Cloud uh, as part of their cloud solution. Uh, customers can run IBM Power Systems whether they're using AIX, IBM I, or Linux on IBM Power. And then IBM Power Systems on GCP offer many benefits, including integrated billing, private API access, integrated customer support, and rapid deployment. So I think this is a very typical uh, partnership relationship that Google has now done with uh, IBM, similar to what they did with NetApp and with VMware uh, and others, where they're actually kind of like reselling the product through the console. They're providing combined support offerings, et cetera. Uh, but yes, technically, an IBM Power 9 series chip is a risk-based chip. So Jonathan, you were, you were tipped off, I think. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Uh, these are actually pretty cool. I don't know how much you guys have done with Power, uh, but you know Macintosh before they made the Intel switch used to be PowerPC based. Yep. Um, and then you know we were actually looking at this at a company that was running Oracle because you could actually run it on top of the IBM Power systems, uh, and you actually got way better performance. Uh, and this is eight or nine years ago. I mean they were talking about like three gigahertz performance when Intel was still in like 1.5, 1.6 gigahertz. So you could get way more performance for way less processor cores and save a bunch of money on your licensing. And so we were we were really heavily looking at this as an option uh, for our Oracle databases, but we uh, we ended up not pulling the trigger on it because uh, we were a little concerned about Oracle getting angry, uh, which everyone does, and so we didn't do that. But uh, yeah, they were pretty neat chips, and the POC we did was pretty awesome. I, I was actually really impressed with what they could do with uh, this technology. I think one of the reasons the IBM Power chips have have the edge over um, x86 chips is because they they actually have a, a hypervisor built in to the CPUs, and so similar to I guess what AWS is doing with the Nitro system, where they've they've turned a lot of their management systems into hardware. The the power platform already includes uh, a lightweight hypervisor on chip already, so it kind of yeah. reduces reduces some of the uh, virtualization overheads. Very nice. Do you think that um, the fact that GCP is offering this sig- uh, signals that Google doesn't see IBM's cloud as a competitor? I'm not really sure. I was wondering about that, too, as I was writing up the show notes for this. Um, I feel like this is a way for Google and IBM to play nice a little bit, and I'm sure they have customers that are IBM customers who are making the move to GCP, and they're demanding this as well. Uh, And this is a way for IBM to not really lose a lot of face because it's just an integration into the GCP cloud. It's not the GCP isn't saying they're going to, you know, put power PCs in their data center, right? I think the way that those... 
these partnership agreements work is that you know you put the, your equipment into Equinix, and then there's the you connect, you're cross connected to the Google Cloud, and then they resell it through the partner portal. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a complete like, hey, our cloud doesn't work. It's just maybe they're going to position it as this is an extension of our cloud that we've attached to GCP, just like Oracle is an extension of Azure's cloud. So you can use Oracle databases and Oracle technology with your Azure footprint. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be curious to see if IBM ever gets a foothold in the space. With I mean, obviously they're spending a lot of resources to. What did IBM call? Uh, didn't they? Was it they had a quote last year about? You know that this you know, it was just the first inning of cloud, and they were going to win the next couple innings. I, I don't know if this is the right direction for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that quote was going. It was around the Red Hat acquisition time frame. I forget exactly the quote, but uh, there was a lot of uh, you know, I, cloud is in its infancy, and you know these other companies have won the first stage, but we're going to win the war. And it was like, yeah, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I mean, maybe that that uh, Google thinks that the the power systems are uh, the future for machine learning. Uh, yeah, they definitely could give you more performance in that space, so it's very possible. Yeah, yeah watch the space, I guess. But I'll take the point for the uh, for the wrist chips in GCP. And uh... Uh, yes, uh, I found the quote. It was in episode eleven with uh, Corey. Uh, IBM CEO says that they will be number one in cloud chapter two. There you go. Really, it's not going to be next gen. I thought for sure chapter two would be next gen. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why did Oracle partner with Azure? They should have partnered with IBM. Like yeah. but the yeah, soft layer next gen. connects to Oracle. There you go. Then you get next-gen cloud. Uh, Google has released a couple of new network performance benchmarking tools. Uh, these are the PerfKit Benchmarker, which is an open-source tool created inside Google that makes network performance benchmarking faster and easier by automating network setup, provisioning of VMs for the tests, and the test runs themselves. Uh, they also released a new benchmarking methodology for using PerfKit Benchmarker continuously and consistently. Uh, there are several network benchmarking tests available today, including inter-region, inter-zone, and inter-zone network performance tests. And this supports on-premises to cloud and cross-cloud performance benchmarks. I assume that Google has built this tool so they can show how superior that network is to AWS or other cloud providers, uh, which is a shrewd move. <laughs> yeah, I bet it also helps a lot when people are complaining about um, network performance when they're doing migrations that you can pretty easily prove that uh, the network isn't the problem. But, I mean, you're going to have to pay for this uh, out of your own pocket. I mean, the, the faster you pump data through the network, the faster you spend dollars. So That's true. Your, uh, your cross-region your cross uh, fees rack up pretty quick. It's like, it's like a one-armed bandit of the, of the Google Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, just go run this tool on AWS and then you know, be shocked at your bill. <laughs> That's why you should come to Google instead. It's a great play. Well done, Google. Uh, Google is apparently helping retailers win the digital race. Uh, they're finally expanding their retail acceleration program in 2020. The retail acceleration program is a service offering that helps retailers optimize their websites, build a unified view of customer data, and drive increased foot traffic to their stores. Uh, there's a couple of pieces of this, including a new expanded customer reliability engineering team, which is a white glove service that helps retailers plan and execute flawlessly during their peak shopping seasons, and a new Google Cloud search for the retail component, which will become later in 2020. Uh, powered by Google Search. The uh, retail search capability will have high-quality product search results for their websites and mobile apps, and a new Google Cloud one-to-one engagement for retail and blueprint and best practices guide on how to build these types of data-driven solutions effectively and with less upfront costs. And Google has also released a new buy optimization and forecasting service to allow retailers to plan inventory and manage their supply chains to deliver the right products to the right channels at the right time. Wow, sounds like they're moving into the, uh, the Amazon marketplace kind of space. Well, I think this is really more about them saying, well, you really trust Amazon to have your retail business, mm-hmm. or do you want to go to Asia 
or do you want to go to us? And we, we think we're providing you better high value tools and machine learning capabilities than Azure is to help you with your retail business. So I, I see what their play is here. Makes sense. Uh, and it's definitely one of those big areas that retailers in particular uh, struggle to give AWS money as they see it as a competitor. Yep. Now I think it's clear if you're going to go after a vertical and you're Google, this is the vertical to go after. Oh, for sure. Everyone who doesn't want to go with AWS, that seems like a, a pretty good set. Uh, Google broke out the, uh, the old wallet this week and purchased AppSheet uh, to help businesses create and extend applications without coding. Uh, AppSheet, of course, is one of the leading no-code application development platforms out there and is used by a number of enterprises across a variety of industries. Uh, and the acquisition will help enterprises empower millions of citizen developers to more easily create and extend applications without the need for professional coding skills. Have you seen one of those app sheets? I did look at some videos on YouTube, and I was sort of horrified. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd rather yeah. pay an engineer to build a <laughs> build a piece of software for me than, than try and use a spreadsheet to uh, design all the functionality of an app. And sometimes you just need a really simple database. I think we talked about it in the previous episode about FileMaker Pro, and and yeah, I think actually I was talking to someone at work today about HyperCard, which was an Apple thing way back in the day, which dates me dramatically. Um, <laughs> but you know, these kind of visual GUI things that you can kind of put a workflow on top of, and so you know, uh, what I was seeing in some of my research on this, like there's another competitor of theirs that provides that same database type of table thing, it looks like Excel, and then it has a web form builder, or you can build forms to input data into it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it really reminded me a lot of Google Sheets. <laughs> Once you get into complex logic, then it's just, yeah, it's just easier to, it's even easier sometimes to learn how to code. Uh, there's a couple of interesting quotes here. Uh, according to the Forrester Wave, uh, AppSheet has the most aggressive strategy and roadmap for empowering business people as developers. The platform has the highest score possible in the commercial model criterion, and it shows in a stellar experience along with Strong features for mobile app development, data design, application scaling, and documentation generation. Uh, so that's uh, interesting. That it was apparently the leader in the space uh, until Google and uh, Azure and AWS released their own features, <laughs> own capabilities. <laughs> and then uh, they say here that AppSheet complements the Google Cloud strategy to reimagine the application development space with a platform that helps enterprises innovate with a no-code development workflow, automation, application integration, and API management as they modernize their business processes in the cloud, uh, which kind of made me think that maybe that's what Amplify is supposed to be, or the beginning of what Amplify is going to be. Because uh, Amplify does a lot of the similar things, you know, API management, mobile applications, um, integration, workflow automation, that's all part of Amplify. And uh, I can see how that might get more no-code type features on AWS in the future as well. So uh, very, very interesting. Uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, excitement when this announcement got made. Also, people who are not excited were very vocal. Yes, 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 it was. <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of it either, but uh, I like the idea and concept, but I, I just, I feel like it's, you know, if, ever, if you're limited in the tool set, then none of these things are really different traders, and they're all very common, so we'll see. All right, Peter, you want to take us to the lightning round? All right, introducing workload shares in AWS well-architected tool. I'm so glad I don't have to explain to our TAM for the 180 accounts that our VPC design is standardized and templated <laughs> and answer the exact same security and IAM questions every time. So now I can do it one time and I can share that out to all my 180 accounts. And then when they do the well-architected reviews with our engineering teams, they can focus on the part that matters to those engineering teams. So I, I for one, am super ecstatic about this one. I'm sure you are too, Peter, because I know you guys do a lot of uh, these well-architected reviews as part of your certification and partner relationship. We do, we do. Unfortunately for us, a lot of them are, obviously they're, per customer. So 
we won't be able to get as much value as you get out of it, but we will for our larger customers for sure. Yeah, basically any of your customers who are doing multi-account strategy will, yeah. will benefit. Yeah. Amazon SQS now supports one-minute CloudWatch metrics in all commercial regions. Don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon finding new and faster ways to spend your money every day. Yeah. AWS Transfer for SFTP supports VPC security groups and elastic IP addresses. So you can now provision IP addresses for your SFTP and then not attach them. And then you can spend even more money on your overpriced SFTP solution. Dude, SFTP and elastic IPs just go so well together, though. I'm so happy. It does, especially because of um, you know people people caching the um, the signatures. Yeah, for sure, and uh, that it actually solves a couple of use cases for that signature problem. Um, I do think I had some alphabet soup earlier that had uh, SFTP EIP as the letters just lined up together. Yeah, just lined right up there. It, it, it made perfect awesome. sense. Yeah. Amazon Cognito now supports CloudWatch usage metrics. Thank God, I can now actually see how many users are actually logging into my system with Cognito. <laughs> like maybe you want to know how many users you have per day. It's nice that you can finally get that data. You know, they've actually had that feature around for a very long time, but it's been incognito. Ah! <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> AWS Marketplace offers new pricing options for container-based software. Oh, this is either the worst thing ever or amazing. I can't decide. Uh, but maybe the spot market will help me out in the future. I put all my effort into the last one. I got nothing now. <laughs> yeah. Like, take you're on the oxygen machine still. <laughs> on the bench taking a break. Getting the, your hamstring stretched out. <laughs> Amazon EC2 spot instances can now be stopped and started similar to on-demand instances. This is so much better than the Hibernate thing they came up with earlier in the summer. And everyone laughed at them. It's. I mean, this is this is the beginning of the end for for uh, regular on-demand pricing for sure, isn't it? Because you can, now you just you can launch a workload and say, I only want to run this when it costs three cents an hour, and it runs when it costs three cents an hour, and it shuts down when it when it doesn't. It's um. Ooh. So it stop. You can have it stop instead yes, of terminating. Yes, you stop it. And so it's, it's similar to what they were doing with the hibernate. So if your instance supported hibernate, you could hibernate it when the spot market price went up. But the problem was we talked about when the hybrid thing was that the memory limitation was like you couldn't do more than 16 or 32 gigs of memory. Oh, that's, yeah, the low. Windows Windows uh, Hibernate thing, yeah. Um, so this is actually even better because now I can just stop the instance. I stop paying for it other than the EBS storage. And then when I, the price is the right place, it comes back online exactly as it was you know, other than it rebooted. Right. Perfect. So that's that's really great. The, like It almost was a main show topic, but I yeah. it's better here. AWS device. Did everyone talk about that one yet? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Okay, yeah, we're good. AWS Device Farm announces desktop browser testing using Selenium. This is what I was promised with Device Farm five years ago, that it would be able to do testing beyond mobile devices. So thank goodness they finally delivered. <laughs> just just in time for all the browsers to converge on, well, on the Chromium platform. That's fantastic. <laughs> yes, perfect. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, we appreciate it. It is. I was looking at some of the pricing of this because, uh, like, uh, what's the weird company name that does Selenium test running for you? Uh, Sauce Labs. Uh, you know, so this is actually uh, for like the first 430 minutes a month. It's uh, significantly cheaper than Sauce Labs, and after that, you kind of get into a different pricing tier, and Sauce Labs are a little more attractive. But um, the flexibility of being able to do this uh, combined with your mobile testing and all that—I I don't know. I think it. I think there's advantages, and I suspect that you will see that this gets a lot of adoption for testing teams. Yeah, I can only imagine the price is going to go one direction, and that would be down. 
Amazon Workspaces Migrate enables migration to the Windows 10 desktop experience and the new Workspaces streaming protocol is in beta. I'm so glad I don't have to tell my users anymore, hey, you want to move to Windows 10, we have to destroy your entire desktop experience and give you a new one. That's finally. <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, uh, the other part of this, the Workspaces streaming protocol is actually kind of cool. Um, I didn't realize, you know, if you've ever dealt with PC over IP, uh, for those dumb terminals from like Wise and those companies to connect to VDI, uh, PC over IP is a little bit flaky at times. So this new Workspaces streaming protocol is much lighter weight and much faster. Uh, this is now in beta, so that's actually pretty cool. Uh, so a much faster, much better PCOIP solution that makes it easier to do uh, high graphic work. Nice. I guess it works well with their uh, their Quadro workspaces, right? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Cool. Oh yeah. I'm Maybe not, that's why it came out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd, I'd be happy about the migration to Windows 10 desktop experience. It's not. I, I hate the Windows 10 desktop experience. <laughs> I mean, it's better than the Windows 8 desktop experience. Don't talk about Windows 8. <laughs> or the Vista, or the Me, or the Bob. Like, we don't have any of those, I know. Go Highlander too. Dude, I lived through all of them, and Windows 8 is the reason I bought a Mac. <laughs> yeah. That, that, uh, I was a Mac guy very early on in my career. Or actually, when I was a kid. You know, we, our, my very first computer was a Mac SE. We had a big Radius screen attached to it. My parents did newsletters on PageMaker, all this PageMaker back in the day. Um, and then we had we had Macs until the, clone, the Mac clones, and then they... They killed Mac clones, and my dad was like, "Screw this!" And we switched to Windows 95. Then I did Windows until about like 20, about you know, about 2007 or so. And yeah, it was about Windows 8 time or two. I was like, "I'm gonna go back to Mac. So much easier." <laughs> and they, and at that point, they had you know Intel finally, and you had a real native Unix experience, which was super nice versus the uh, Sidgwin experience of Windows. Yep. All right. I I gotta say, uh, trying to remember who the winner was. He went incognito. Mm-hmm. Ah, excellent. Jonathan. Clever, clever wordplay wins it every yes. time. Yes, every time. I'm a sucker for those. <laughs> you are. You are. I got to work on those. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for the Cloud Pod this week. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, anything going on that you guys want to talk about or, uh, or say goodnight? Is there something going on okay. that you're reminding me to talk about that I've forgotten to talk about? I don't... <laughs> no, I don't know. It was a weird transition. I'm off of my games and I... No, I like it. I, we should be ready to, to have responded to that. I take responsibility. I'm going to do better next week. Bring something to the table. When's, when's our next AWS um, East Bay meetup? Uh, it'll be in February, actually, out in the East Bay of San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, I don't have a date quite locked down for it. We're trying to see if Viva is going to host uh, February or not. Uh, but I will find probably have that by next week, so I'll let you guys know. Cool. Either we're hosting, or they're hosting, or I have a connection out at workday. Maybe they're going to host. We'll see. Are we going to try and get a uh, guest speaker again? Or? Uh, we would love to get guest speakers. We always love guest speakers. Yes. Uh, so I will, yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do. All right, guys. Awesome. We'll have a great night. We will see you next week on the Cloud Pod. Good night. See ya. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the CloudPod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us at hashtag thecloudpod. Performance art is uh, making the cloud network performance benchmarking faster and easier. Uh, actually, I'm going to try that again. Uh, Google is releasing a new tool to make cloud network performance benchmarking faster and easier. 
Uh, this new tools are there's two new tools here include uh, investing in a benchmarking tool. Ugh, I just can't get through this. <laughs> I apologize, Jonathan. <laughs> Once more with feeling. <laughs> uh, Google has released a couple of new network performance benchmarking tools to make it faster and easier to benchmark uh, the network between your private cloud, uh, the cloud zone, and between your networks. <laughs> yeah. <to> the... <laughs> Okay, now you're laughing. A cloud network performance bench benchmarking tool which benchmarks the performance of cloud networks. Of, uh, <laughs> okay. of cloud networks. There you go. That's what it is. Uh, At least it's named well. It does exactly what it says on the, on the can. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It does. It's hard to fluff it up. Okay. Right. Let me try one more time. One more, one more time. Without you laughing. <laughs> if we can help it. 